Good morning, Sovereign Grace. It's great to see all of you here. If you've not met me, my name's Jason, and it's my great privilege to serve as one of the pastors here. If this is your first time with us this morning, welcome. We're thankful that God has brought you here to worship with us this morning. Having said that, let me turn your attention now to the word of the Lord as we find it in Psalm 44, continuing our way through the Psalter. We'll be looking at this psalm in its entirety, all 26 verses. I can do it, I promise, in a timely manner, less confident of that, but we can get through all of this, and I will be reading all 26 verses, the psalm in its entirety, and before I do so, I remind you, as always, brothers and sisters, that what we're about to hear read is the word of the living God. May he be praised and thanks for it, and may we receive it from him as we look to him in faith. Psalm 44, to the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. O God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You with your hand drove out the nations, but them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face, for you delighted in them. You are my God, O King. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust, nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes and have put to shame those who hated us. In God we boast continually and we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. But you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. You have made us turn back from the foe and those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. You have sold your people for a trifle demanding no high price for them. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors, the derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations, a laughingstock among the peoples. All day long, my disgrace is before me, and my shame has covered my face at the sound of the taunter and reviler at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. All this has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false to your covenant, our heart is not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God, or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would God not discover this? For he knows the secrets 
of the heart. Yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Awake! Why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself. Do not reject us forever. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? For our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Let me pray. Sovereign Lord, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we ask now for you to teach us the way of your statutes, that we might keep them to the end. Give us understanding, we pray, that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole heart. Lead us in the path of your commandments and not to selfish gain. Turn our eyes from looking to worthless things and give us life in your ways. We ask these things in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Well, in the Christian life, I'm sure we would all attest to this, it's always hard to suffer, isn't it? But I think it's particularly difficult to suffer when you know that you're doing the right thing. When you know that you're about what the Lord has left you to be about. You're walking in accord with His will as He has revealed it in His Word. And yet, as you're doing that, it seems like at every turn there's hindrances, there's suffering. There's losses. There's pain. In God's providence, it seems like as you're about doing what he's left you to do, you just keep running into obstacles at every turn. And that God, in his providence, is making it more difficult for you to obey than it is for you to be easier for you to obey. And so you're suffering and you begin to feel like, man, Lord, I know this isn't true. I know this isn't true, but it sure feels right now like you're against me. Even as I'm out doing what you want me to be doing, it's not because of any sin that I can see in my life, that all of these sufferings are happening. No, I'm about what you want me to do. And yet you seem to be slowing me down in that and making it more difficult. You seem to be opposed to me making any progress. It's a difficult situation to be in, isn't it? And the reason I bring it up is because this is the exact situation that the Israelites are in as one of the sons of Korah pens this corporate lament. The bulk of the psalm is a lament of the people of God expressing what I just expressed. Because the Israelites are out trying to do what God left them to do. During this period of time, they were to conquer the nations around them that were the enemies of God and their enemies. And so they would go out in battle. And what we find in this circumstance is they're going out in battle as God has commanded them to do, and yet they're being conquered. 
And so they feel like, God, are you even for us in this? Is this what you want us to do? You've told us this is what you want us to do. Why are you opposed to us in this? Why are we suffering? And brothers and sisters, if you haven't faced that in your life, which I venture a guess all of you have who are Christians here this morning, you're going to at some point. And so the question is, how do we respond? When the Lord seems opposed and against us as we're trying to carry out his will. And this psalm answers that question because we have a wonderful example of the people of God responding in a godly way to this difficult circumstance. And we'll see that we are to respond in three ways. I bet you could have guessed that there would be three ways, right? But there are three ways. First of all, we're going to see that they remember the past. In verses 1 through 8, they remember God's past faithfulness and love and grace towards them. These historical events that God mightily brought about. And so they remember the past. So that they might remember the same God who did that then doesn't change. And He is their God today. So they can trust Him. Second of all, we'll see that they lament their present. In verses 9 through 22, that's the lion's share of of this psalm. It's them lamenting, Lord, why are you bringing this suffering upon us? When we're doing what you've called us to do, why, Lord? So they complain to him. They don't try to fix it in their own strength. They turn in prayer to the Lord, lamenting before him. And then thirdly and finally, what we see them do is we see them plead for the future. In verses 23 through 26, in blood earnestness, they say, Lord, you've got to save us. We're not going to be able to endure this any longer. And we will have no success unless you bless our efforts. And so they're on their faces pleading with him to change their circumstances. And so, brothers and sisters, I pray that we would learn from their example. And as we hear this psalm in Jesus' mouth, we would be encouraged to follow him and suffer for his sake, no matter what that looks like. So let's look first then at how when we're in this circumstance, we are to remember the past. Look at the superscript and verses 1 and 2 with me. To the choir master, a maskil of the sons of Korah. So we're in this section of the Psalms where the sons of Korah are the authors under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they pen this corporate lament. It's recorded for us in sacred scripture, and God has preserved it to our benefit to this very day. And they begin the lament by saying, O oh God, we have heard with our ears, our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in their days, in the days of old. You, with your own hand, drove out the nations. But them you planted. You afflicted the peoples, but them you set free. So where do they start? They start by remembering all that their fathers had taught them. And what we learn about the Israelites is, by and large, they must have had pretty faithful fathers. Because we know from the Old Testament that God commanded the Israelite fathers, you are to tell your children about the exploits of God's people that God brought about in their midst in bringing them out of captivity to Egypt. 
and in caring for them in the wilderness wanderings as I led them through Moses, and then conquering the promised land and all of the unbelieving nations through Joseph. As a matter of fact, the reason, I hope you know this, that the Lord gave many of the ceremonies and festivals for the people of God to observe under the old covenant was for the children to learn about their own history. They were to ask, Father, why do we do this? Father, why do we do that? Well, that's a great question, my child. We do that to remind us of how God brought us out of Egypt. He did it quickly. And we're to do this to remind ourselves of how God provided shelter for us in the wilderness and how he conquered our enemies in the promised land. And so a young Israelite's imagination was filled with these exploits of their mighty God. And so they're saying, as we're in this suffering, we bring to mind what our fathers faithfully, diligently taught us. How, Lord, you are the one. Not only that these things happened for Israel, but, Lord, you are the one who did them. It was your arm that brought these things about. You drove out the unbelieving nations, but them, the people of God, you planted. And here's the thing. They're not just remembering what exploits their fathers beheld and experienced, and the fact that God brought those things about, they're also remembering the fact that they, by their own hand, conquered their enemies. Let's finish off verse 3, and then we'll see that in verses 4 through 8. I'm just going to read right through here. For not by their own sword did they win the land, nor did their own arm save them, but your right hand and your arm and the light of your face For you delighted in them. You are my king, O God. Ordain salvation for Jacob. Through you we push down our foes. Through your name we tread down those who rise up against us. For not in my bow do I trust. Nor can my sword save me. But you have saved us from our foes. And have put to shame those who hate us. In God we boasted continually. And we will give thanks to your name forever, Selah. So do you see what they're saying? They're saying, we're not just remembering the things we've heard about from our fathers, but we're also remembering the exploits that we've experienced as your people. Taking up the sword and the spear and the shield against those enemy nations, Lord, you blessed us and you gave us victory. Now, yes, they used those means. It would have been Sinful and wrong for them to not take up arms and fight against those nations. But the point is, their hope and trust was not in the means themselves. In their own strength, in the sword and the shield and the spear. But in God who gave them the victory. It was God who conquered their enemies. And so, God gets all the glory. And God gets all the praise and thanks. Now, here's the question we have to ask ourselves. Why did God do all this for Israel of old and for this current generation who's singing this psalm? Why did God do this? Well, let me take you back to verse 3. At the very end there, what do we read? Why did the Lord do all these things? For you delighted in them. God had set his covenant love and faithfulness upon a wicked people that were just like the nations. Abraham wasn't worshiping God. Abraham wasn't looking for God. 
God graciously chose him and set his loving kindness upon him. And so God wants to make sure that Israel understands that. It's not because you're better than all the nations. It's not because you're more moral or more intelligent. It's simply because I've loved you. And we know that explicitly from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 7 and 8. Listen to what the Lord says to Israel. He says, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all the peoples, the least of all the peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. In other words, what are we seeing? We're seeing that the reason that the Lord has done this in Israel and through them and set his covenant love upon them and is being faithful to them is simply because of his grace. They didn't earn it. They didn't merit it. There wasn't anything lovely or good in them. It was because God, who is love and goodness itself, set his covenant faithfulness upon them. And so what are they remembering here? They're remembering God's grace. They're remembering God's love. They're remembering God's kindness. And you see, brothers and sisters, when we're doing what God has commanded us to do, and it seems like he's against us in that, We're to remind ourselves and remember of God's grace and love towards us. Towards his people even under the old covenant. But then also, where do we see the ultimate victory? Where do we see the ultimate expression of God's love and grace and kindness towards us? This is the reality that all the old covenant types and shadows were pointing towards. Well, of course, it's the giving of his son. His son comes and lives and dies on the cross. And though his death on the cross looks like defeat at the hands of his enemies, it's actually his victory and triumph and our victory and triumph. Why? Because the wrath of God is propitiated. Jesus is the Passover lamb. So that we are spared the wrath of God spent on him so that we don't experience even an ounce of it. And we're freed now from our enemies of the flesh and the devil and the world. Yes, we still do battle with them, but the decisive victory was dealt and the blow was dealt at the cross. And so we remember that and we rejoice in that. But not only that, what else do we remember? We don't just remember what God did in the past in Jesus. We also remember what he has done in us, in saving us, in regenerating us, in making us a new creation. He has conformed us from one degree of next to the image of his beloved son. And so we can look back and know, Lord, you sanctified me. You have purified me. I love your people more. I love your word more. I want to know you more. I want to make you known to people around me. I've seen how I've been conformed to the image of Christ. I've seen that in my past. And so as I now struggle 
And maybe it feels like you're backtracking. Lord, you seem to be against me as I want to fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil. We remember that in the past, God has been faithful for us to make progress. And so we're to remember this. Why? Why should we remember God's past grace and love and kindness? Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And so even though your circumstances and your own feelings may be telling you he's not for you, he's against you, we know better. And so we cling to his past deliverances, his past conquests in our lives, and we say the same God that did that is for me today, and he will continue to purify me and sustain me and keep me. And so we have to remember this. We must, fathers, tell our children about God's faithfulness to his people throughout the ages. Tell them of God's mighty acts in the scriptures and tell them about how he's been faithful in your life as an individual and in your lives as a family and as a church. Fathers, be about that so that your children will be able to say, I can remember the things my dad taught me. I can remember God's faithfulness. And even though I'm in a dark time right now, I can remember the light of the Lord shining upon me and it will shine yet again. And so we must remember the past. That's the first thing that we see here. Second of all, though, we don't just remember the past. We lament the present. We lament the present. And we see that in the bulk of the psalm here. So let's look first at verse 9. They say, but you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. Do you hear what he's saying? It's like, yeah, we remember all those things, but that was then and this is now. Remember, they've already acknowledged, God, the reason that we had the victory was because you went with us. Because you gave us favor as we obediently took up the sword and the shield and the spear and did battle with our enemies. But you know what, Lord? You're not giving us victory now because you're not with us. You've left us. You're not going out with us in battle. And so instead, we're not experiencing victory. We're experiencing rejection and disgrace. Because you're not going out with us in battle. You're not with us in this, Lord. And so the results are horrific. Look at how the horrific results just pile up. Look first at verses 10 and 11 with me. You have made us turn back from the foe. And those who hate us have gotten spoil. You have made us like sheep for slaughter and have scattered us among the nations. So what are they saying? They're saying, Lord, since you're not going out with us in battle... It's not that we're conquering our enemies. It's not that we're defeating them. Instead, we're having to turn back from fighting. We're having to retreat in defeat. And then we're being plundered. Our things are being taken because we're having to leave so much. And they just come in and they take it all. And then they cut us down. They're slaughtering us. What a pathetic image of sheep going to battle. What's going to happen to those sheep? They're going to get cut down. And that's what's happening to us. And Lord, we're being exiled. Our people are being captured and we're being sent to the farthest flung corners of the earth. We're not together in your place under your rule and blessing as your people. Instead, we're being 
scattered abroad. But it gets even worse. Notice how the psalmist says God treats his people in verse 12. He says, you have sold your people for a trifle, demanding no high price for them. Do you hear what they're saying? Lord, in the past, you told us, and we seem to see the fruit of this, that you saw us as the apple of your eye, the crown of your creation. We were your treasure. But now, it's as if someone has come up and said, how much for your people? And Lord, you've said, I don't care about them. You can have them. Imagine how devastated your kids would be if you did that to them. And yet, Lord, that's what you're doing to us. It's like they came for us and you didn't even put up a fight. You just gave us over to them. Like a trifle. And so we've been rejected. Do you see the rejection? But that's not all. They go on to say, Lord, we've also been disgraced. Look at verses 13 and 14. You have made us the taunt of our neighbors. The derision and scorn of those around us. You have made us a byword among the nations. A laughingstock among the peoples. So do you hear what's happening here? The nations are seeing what's happening to Israel. And rather than, as God said would be the case in Isaiah 49 verse 6, that they would be a light amongst the nations, the nations are taunting them and disgracing them and putting them down. And this is so abroad, it spreads so far abroad amongst the nations that now Israel is like a byword. They're like a proverb. To see someone who's disgraced and suffering Amongst the nations, they would say, oh, they're an Israelite. They're a Hebrew. You're a Hebrew. That's what they would say. Because suffering and disgrace had become so associated with the people of God. And so they bemoan this. They say, Lord, why is this happening? We hate it. Look at verses 15 and 16. All day long my disgrace is before me. And shame has covered my face. At the sound of the taunter and reviler, at the sight of the enemy and the avenger. I don't know if it's just me. Maybe I really fear man and what other people think of me. But don't you hate it when people think poorly of you? Especially when you're doing what you know you should be doing. You're doing what God has left you to do. You're walking in line with his command. And yet, before the watching world, you're maligned. And your name is like a byword. That's hard, isn't it? And the people of God are saying, this is so difficult. Lord, why are you doing this? And yet, we get to the real crux of the problem in verses 17 through 22. So let me read that for you. All this rejection and disgrace has come upon us. Though we have not forgotten you, and we have not been false, to your covenant. Our heart has not turned back, nor have our steps departed from your way, yet you have broken us in the place of jackals and covered us with the shadow of death. If we had forgotten the name of our God or spread out our hands to a foreign God, would not God discover this? For he knows the secrets of the heart. Yet for your sake, 
We are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. So do you see the problem? You know what the problem is? Let's go back to Deuteronomy chapter 28. You don't have to actually turn there. You can if you want. But let's remember, when God entered into this covenant with Israel, you'll remember, he said, if you are obedient, here are these blessings. I'll bless your land. It'll be productive. You'll have lots of children. You'll conquer your enemies. You'll walk in my ways, so on and so forth. But if you are disobedient, here are the covenant curses that I will bring upon you. I will strike your land. I will give you into the hand of your enemies. They will conquer you. You will be barren. The land will not produce well for you. And so walk in the ways of the Lord then. And don't choose the path of curses and death. And so here's the problem. The people of Israel saying, Lord, we're walking in covenant faithfulness with you. We haven't offered worship to false gods. Our hearts haven't strayed from you to idols, to false gods. We haven't worshipped other gods. We've been faithful to you. So why are we experiencing the covenant curses rather than the covenant blessings? We could understand it if we had sinned or we had rebelled and broken the covenant in some gross way. But Lord, we're walking faithfully with you. We're doing what you've commanded us to do. So why, oh why, are you bringing the curses down on our head? Why are you opposed to us, oh God? You ever been there, Christian? You ever been there, church? We're doing what you've commanded us to do. Why are you making this so difficult? Why do you seem to be against us? I'm trying to be faithful at work. I'm trying to parent my children the way that I know I ought to. I'm trying to attend corporate worship regularly and lead my family in family worship the way I know I ought to. I'm trying to fight against the flesh, the world, and the devil. I'm trying to share the gospel with my neighbors and my family members and my co-workers. Why do you seem to be against me in all of this? a difficult place to be, isn't it? And yet it's going to happen. And we can't help but ask the question, why? And do you see where Israel ends up? Do you see where the people of God corporately end up? Look at verse 22. They say, yet for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Brothers and sisters, this is a very difficult question we have to ask ourselves. Are we willing to suffer simply for the sake of God's glory? Not because we did something wrong. Simply because this is what he has called us to. In his mysterious will and plan, this brings glory to him. I think if we're honest with ourselves, we struggle with saying, yes, absolutely, don't we? And that's why we're thankful that Jesus came, aren't we? Because that's exactly what Jesus did. 
and he did it perfectly. No one perfectly was covenantally faithful except Jesus. And yet he's the man of sorrows. No one suffered like he did. And he was always doing his father's will. Israel didn't do it perfectly. They can say in this instance, we're walking in covenant faithfulness. But boy, can we look at their past and see all the ways that they've sinned. And we can look at our past and see all the ways we've sinned as well, can't we? But Jesus never sinned once. And yet no one, no one knew suffering like him. He is the lamb that was slaughtered simply for the glory of God. And for our sake, that we might be reconciled and redeemed and not have to experience the wrath of God. And we're thankful for that, aren't we? We rejoice that he did that in our place. And we like that part of it. But here's the part that we don't like. We now, as Revelation says, follow that slain lamb who suffered wherever he leads. And where does he lead us? On the same path that he walked. And what was that? First suffering and then glory. First a cross, then a crown. And Paul makes this so clear that we're going to follow in Jesus' footsteps in Romans 8 verse 17. By the way, if you're looking for a passage to dwell on in between now and the Sunday evening service, go home and read with your family Romans chapter 8 and just bask in its glory. But listen to what Paul says in Romans eight seventeen. He says, since we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We like that part. Here's the part we don't like. Provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's no glory without suffering. Not because by your suffering you somehow earn glory, but because that's the path that Jesus takes you on because you're united to him by grace through faith. And our fellowship with him is deepened through those sufferings. Which is why, by the way, Paul picks this up if we jump down to verse 36 of Romans 8. Paul picks up Psalm 44, verse 22, and he cites it in Romans 8, 36. He says, as it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Brothers and sisters, as hard as it is, behold our calling. We don't go out in the world's eyes as conquering victors but as lambs before wolves to be slaughtered. Now, just because that's our calling doesn't mean that we're not to lament that. Doesn't mean that we don't cry out to the Lord in agony. Because you want the best example of that? Isn't that what Jesus does in Gethsemane? Father, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. 
Yet not my will, but yours be done. What does he cry out while he's on the cross? Experiencing the wrath of God for all the sins of the elect who ever were or are or ever would be. He cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He doesn't say, oh, this is God's plan, so I'm just going to suck it up and be stoic about it. No, he laments his suffering. And brothers and sisters, it's our privilege in faith to do the exact same thing. To cry out to the Lord, where are you? Why are you doing this? But we don't stay there. What do we move on to? We don't just remember the past. We don't just lament the present. But then also, what do we do? We plead for the future. We plead for the future. Look at verse 23 with me. Awake, why are you sleeping, O Lord? Rouse yourself, do not reject us forever. Now I've got to tell you, when I read that verse, I feel about that big spiritually. I feel like I'm just utterly shamed at the response of the people of God here. You want to know why? Because unfortunately, and this is a public confession, This isn't a good thing. This is a bad thing. My knee-jerk reaction when I really start running into obstacles, when I know I'm doing what the Lord wants me to do, is to say, all right, I'm going to set my face like a flint and press in even harder. I could do this. Nothing's going to turn me away. Foolish, foolish man. Jason, do you not know how weak you are? And so what happens more often than not, the Lord graciously, because he's treating me like a son, lovingly allows me to fall flat on my face. (laughs) Who do you think you are? You can't carry out my commands without my strength. But see, my knee-jerk reaction isn't to fall on my face and cry out in earnestness and fervency and urgency, Lord, you've got to save me. No, it's fine. I'll do it myself. I don't say those words. But that's my hard attitude. I don't know if you can relate to that. I'm guessing more of you probably can than you care to admit. But it's wrong. Instead, we ought to respond like this. It doesn't mean that we don't keep doing what the Lord has called us to do. But there's this utter sense of complete dependency upon the Lord. Lord, you must act. I can't just keep using the means that you've left The word, prayer, the sacraments, fellowship with others, the proclamation of the gospel. I know you've left me those means and I'm going to use them. But if your spirit does not wield them to bring about certain results, I'm just going through the motions. And nothing will happen. There will be no fruit. And so we should be on our faces pleading with the Lord. Now, obviously, let's be clear. The people of God don't think that God is actually sleeping. He doesn't sleep. The Lord is not a creature. He's not dependent. He doesn't need sleep. We know that they know Psalm 121, verse 4. He who keeps Israel neither sleeps nor slumbers. So what's going on here then? If you have young kids, you know exactly what's going on. I don't care who you're talking to. I don't care if you're asleep. 
I don't care what's going on, I need help right now. Whatever you're doing, mom and dad, is not nearly as important as the help that I need right now. So rouse yourself. Gird your loins to help me. (laughs) But you get the point. Children who know that they're loved and that their parents care for them, they're just going to blurt it out. I need help. And that's what the people of God are doing here. And they're longing for the Lord's face, like in the Aaronic blessing, to shine upon them. Look at verse 24. Why do you hide your face? Why do you forget our affliction and oppression? It's more of the same. Lord, your face used to shine upon us. And now you've hidden it. Help us. Don't forget. They know the Lord doesn't forget. They're saying, act, Lord. Bear your mighty arm." Like you did for our fathers of old, for Moses, for Abraham, for Joshua. As you've done for David, as you've done for us in the past. Bear your arm yet again and redeem your people. Because you see the situation is dire. And we see just how dire it is in verse 25. They say, for our soul is bowed down to the dust. Our belly clings to the ground. Do you hear what they're saying? They're saying, Lord, we know the curse of the fall. What happens after Adam and Eve eat the fruit that God commanded them not to? He curses them and says, what? From the dust you came and from the dust you will return. You came from the ground, you're going to go back to it. That's why we bury people in the ground, right? And what do we say at funerals? Ashes to ashes, dust to dust. They're saying, Lord, we're going to die. Don't you understand what's at stake here? Our lives, your glory. So redeem us. It's so bad, they say at the very end of verse 25, that our belly clings to the ground. They could be saying one of two things here. Maybe they're saying both things. You get the imagery. They're saying, Lord, it's like you created us to walk upright, but we're so distraught, we're so disgraced, we're so rejected that it's like we're on our hands and our knees and we're so low that our belly is dragging on the ground. That's how close we are to death. That imagery should also make you think of, again, the curse of God upon who? Satan the serpent, right? On your belly now, Satan. And you're going to lick the dust of the earth all the rest of your days. So do you hear what the people of God might be saying? Lord, we're about to die. Why are you treating us like your enemies? Like Satan himself? Now they know that's not true. Just like you and I know that's not true when we're suffering. But it feels that way, doesn't it sometimes, brothers and sisters? And so what do we have to remind ourselves of? We have to remind ourselves exactly of what the people of God did here at the end of this psalm. Look at verse 26. Rise up. Come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. Do you notice that they end where they started? Because where did they start? Lord, the whole reason that these past victories were experienced by Israel... And our fathers were able to pass them down is because of your love and grace and kindness. That's it. Your kindness. And so, Lord, we now look to you and plead for you to be with us in our future for the exact same reason. 
Do you see, they don't end it by saying, Lord, we're doing what you've commanded us to do. So come help us. We've merited this. We've earned this. Where are you? Come on. It's not their final plea. And they don't say, Lord, we're innocent. We haven't sinned against you in any way. So what's going on? Help us because, look, our hands are clean. No, they say, Lord, because of your steadfast love, rise, help us, sustain us, and keep us. And I love that the psalm ends here because it's exactly where Paul ends in Romans 8 as well, isn't it? We've already heard it read once, but I want to read it again. Look where Paul ends in Romans 8, verses 35 through 39. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Because that's the lie we're tempted to believe. That's the way it feels. Does the Lord love us? And we're experiencing all these trials and temptations and frustrations to trying to carry out his will. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Literally that word there is abundant conquerors. Super conquerors. It's as if Paul is saying, you are supermen. But note why. Not because you picked yourself up by your bootstraps. Not because you were able to white knuckle it until the very end. But because it's through him who loved us. Through Jesus. Because of his life, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. We will endure because he will lovingly keep us. Jesus will not lose even one that the Father has given him. Paul goes on to say, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Why will nothing separate us from the love of God? Because Jesus was separated, as it were, in our place on the cross. And so that will never happen to us. And so nothing brothers and sisters, nothing. No matter how great the suffering, no matter how great the darkness, no matter how deep the pit can separate you from God's love. So let us remember the past. Let us lament the suffering that we're undergoing. And let us plead before the Lord for our future, knowing that he will hold us fast and he will keep us. And this is not evidence that he doesn't love us, but that he does. And that we're walking in Christ's footsteps. Let me pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We're humbled by your loving kindness. We remember how you showed it to us in Jesus. And in redeeming us and sanctifying us. And we pray that we would regularly cry out to you in prayer. Lamenting our sufferings. Casting ourselves at your feet. And pleading with you to act and to sustain us. And we pray that you would arm us with the mindset 
the Christian life is one of suffering and one in which you sustain us so that we are more than conquerors. Father, it's in this confidence that we live our lives. It's in this confidence that we send out our missionaries knowing that it's as we suffer that your gospel is spread far and near. And so we pray as a church that you would drive this deep into our hearts and then bring an abundance of fruit in our lives as a result, all as we bask together in your everlasting love, O Lord. We ask this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.